Let's turn to Joshua chapter 4 and read from verse 1. Um, picking, picking up most of the verses in this passage. Joshua 4 verse 1. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priest stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you what do these stones mean, tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to the camp where they put them down. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed, in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plans of Jericho for war. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground then the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stages before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just as he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. You know, we read this story and, and it's just very familiar to us, yet the feeling that they had at the time when they just crossed the Jordan, the the sense of awe that God had just done an amazing thing. And, and you read the story, and it's, it's something in the past, and to capture that sense of awe, the very last verse, it talks about that you might know the fear of the Lord. Well, the awe they would have felt at that time would have been had that element of fear and, and wow, what an incredible God, what a powerful event. And... Uh, I was thinking of, of, of this, and I, I thought of a particular event that I faced one time when I was in Dargaville, and uh, we had a, a chap who was in his mid-50s who became a Christian, and it's always a delight with, with people at that age when they become a real genuine convert, they become very humble, like a child, and I got on very well with him, and 
he was a bus driver for one of the local uh, rural schools. And uh, a couple of months after he was saved, he came to me one day and he said, look, I was, I was shaving. And while I was shaving, I saw the scene in front of me. Um, and in the scene, I was, I was driving the kids. I arrived at school and, and I kept all the kids in the bus because I was afraid for their safety. That something that there was, and just as I, as I was holding them in and keeping them back from going into school, a tree in the grounds of the school fell down across the pathway. And that was on a Friday. And uh, he said to me, what does it mean? And I said, well, I, I don't know. It could, be, it could be literal or it could be symbolic. And God will make that plain to you. Well, it was the ne early the next week I heard the story of what happened. On the Monday, uh, there was quite a storm blowing and he was feeling somewhat agitated. And uh, he knew it was a small school, he knew the staff well, and he went into the school early, about half past two or so, and he was talking with one of the teachers there, and he was kind of telling them, although you can imagine the story, a bit unusual, but he was telling them about what he'd, he'd sort of seen. And uh, the headmaster, it was very, uh, just at the end of school, and the headmaster came into the room, and he heard a bit of the story. He didn't pick up exactly what was going on. He just heard about this tree. And, and so the headmaster actually kept the kids in. And right at three o'clock, the big tree fell right down across the pathway. Well, yeah, your response there, you get a little bit of the sense of awe. And when I heard this, I thought, wow, God. This is your signature. Well, in a small way, that captures the feeling that the, that the uh, Jews had on that day. This was a very significant time in the life of the nation. It was a new leader, a new country, and a very big challenge that was coming their way. There was war. And, uh, of course, they... They'd never experienced war, they'd had some battles, but they'd never experienced what they were going to face now, where they had to basically go in and conquer a whole land and take over this land. And at this crucial time, God performed a miracle which, which actually accomplished a number of things. One was it established Joshua as the leader. He'd been appointed as the leader, but you'd all know the fact, person can be given a position, but really that doesn't mean they're recognised accepted fully as, as qualifying. Um, but this event really gave Joshua the, the, the seal of his leadership. As it says in verse uh, 14, that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life just as they had revered Moses. And that word revered is the same as fear at the end of the chapter. There was a sense of this guy, he's got, you know, he's hearing from God. He's someone to be respected. But then there was a second purpose for this miracle, I, I believe, and that was to prepare them for war. As I said, they'd faced some battles in the past, but now there was an ongoing war. Some would die. They were going to face reversals. It wasn't just going to be a nice, sweet run. Um, it possibly could have been if they'd been a perfect people, but they weren't. And uh, there were battles going on within their own hearts as they were battling for the nation. 
And, and very soon after this, I mean, this is a major miracle, but very soon after this, we read the hearts of the people were melted and became like water when they faced their first reversal. So to prepare them for special challenges, God gave them a special experience. To strengthen their faith and give them confidence that God was with them. And, and an example I have, and Reuben encouraged me to share this, was uh, when we were first called to go and plant this church, a Baptist church in Queenstown. Now, you can imagine feeling somewhat, um, how would you like to be asked to go and plant a church um, when you've never done it before? And, uh, and also with the Baptists, they're very good at this. They call you to do it, but there's no financial support. Um, so basically, we went down there, and, and Dalton and Lulu, some of you who, who are here and are now back in Queenstown, our two families uprooted and went down to Queenstown. Now, after I'd faced all the wrestles of making the decision and facing the, the realisation that it was quite a financial risk, I was, we'd made the decision, and I was indagable just thinking about this and, and sort of thinking, praying, and saying, well, what am I going to do for a job? I, I mean, the kind of job experience that I had was very specialised, and then I've been a pastor for a number of years, and I had nothing that I could say, I can do this, uh, I can try this in Queenstown. And as I was thinking this, a, a thought popped into my head, teaching. Teaching, and I, I thought, what a ridiculous thought. I can't teach. I'm not trained as a teacher. Um, what a silly idea. And I basically just pushed it out of my mind. But it stuck. And uh, teaching, teaching. Well, there was a person in our town who was involved with the education board, so a Christian guy, and I, I went along and talked to him, and he said, well, actually, because of your tertiary qualifications, you can actually get a teaching job. You just can't get a permanent position. You can get a temporary or part-time relief or whatever he described. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Maybe the thought is not ridiculous, although the thought of teaching still seemed to be ridiculous to me. Uh, then there was another person I, I knew in the town who was a teacher, and uh, he, he was a maths teacher, and I talked with him about it, and I thought, well, and I talked with him about salary and that sort of thing, and, and I thought, well, if I could get, and I sort of thought this and prayed this, if I could get two maths classes, I, I could remember maths, I enjoyed maths unusually, but I did, and, and, and it's the sort of subject you don't forget. And so I thought, well, if I could get two maths classes, that would be great. I wrote to the headmaster at Queenstown uh, Wakatip High School to say we were going to be enrolling our kids, we were coming down there, and I also mentioned this thought of teaching. And he wrote back and he said, he, he said, yes, it's possible for you to teach. He gave the same reasons, the fact you've got tertiary qualifications even though you're not registered or had any training. And, uh, but he said, we've got no positions available. Well, I arrived there at the beginning of the year, about two weeks into the term, and I went and saw him. And he said, um, actually, a position has suddenly become available. A teacher has just handed in her resignation and she teaches two maths classes and a science class. Uh, he said, come and see me in a week. I think he basically was hoping to find a real teacher. <laughs> but uh, a week I went back to him and he said, look, um, yeah, we want to employ you, but we think it'd be too much to get you to do all three classes, and so we're going to get, ask you to do the two maths classes. 
Well, you can imagine the sense I had then of, of you know, God has opened a door. The thought was his, obviously his, um, and, and opened it so wide open. But, you know, I needed to know that it was God because when you have never been stepped inside a classroom for 20 years, the last time I'd been in a classroom was when I'd been at school myself, and to go in there and find that school has changed <laughs> and that management is far more important than knowledge of the subject you're teaching and you don't have a clue. And uh, there were times when I felt tormented, actually, the pressure of teaching when you've never done it before and, and facing the kind of challenges you face without any classroom experience in teaching and training. But I survived, and I think this experience that God gave me before I did it helped me survive. You see, God does give us special experiences, and at the time, as I said, we can feel great, but it may very well be that God is giving you those experiences to prepare you for challenges, special challenges you're going to face. But this, this event, this miracle that we read of here, was not just for Joshua, and it was not just for the people who experienced it firsthand. It was also for future generations, including us. The stones were set up as a reminder for future generations. And we just pick up those uh, specific verses in verse 6 where it says, In the future, when your children ask you what do these stones mean, tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And then again in verse 21, in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. These stones were to be a memorial. They were for future generations to see and ask and know about this great miracle. They wouldn't experience it firsthand, but nevertheless it was to give them, uh, to strengthen them and give them um, faith. We don't have the stones, but we have it written in the book. So we've got the same story to remind us. And in reading about this and thinking about this and remembering this, our faith can be strengthened. And I think one of the things we see in Scripture is that we don't actually have to experience the miracle for it to be able to strengthen our faith. We can be blessed by believing in that miracle in the past. I found it very interesting in the story of, the, of Lazarus and the rich man where, where, the, where we're told in the New Testament. And, and the, the rich man who asked if you, I won't go into the story, but the rich man asked if, if God could send back someone, send back uh, Lazarus from the dead to speak to his brothers. And God said, well, Abraham said to him, there's no need for that, basically. If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. In fact, these stories here 
are to be believed. And in believing them and reading them and meditating on them and thinking about them, they strengthen our faith. And, and Psalm 77 highlights how important this remembering is, particularly in times of struggle. And let's just got a few verses from, from Psalm 77, but the psalmist here is going through a very tough time. He's crying out to God for help. He's in distress. We're told he's groaning and he's growing faint. And the measure of his distress is brought out in these verses. Psalm 77 verse 7. I, I enjoy reading this because this is in the scriptures. This is someone speaking in a way Christians aren't meant to speak. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? What an oxymoron that is. Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Now, I know it's in the form of questions, but it is strong questions. God, where are you? You're supposed to be faithful, but you're not. It doesn't look like it anyway. And there are times when, when we can go through real deep struggle like this, where God seems distant and, and we are deeply discouraged. We can feel really forgotten and cut off from God. And it might be triggered by a failure, a failure in marriage, or a failure with our children or family. Maybe financial failure, or failure with, it, with our health, or with the church. And sometimes it's a succession of blows till finally one just tips us over the edge. And, and there can be a sense of incredible barrenness, an invasion of depression or despair. Why, God, why? And anyway, is there even a God there to hear me? It's amazing how even a Christian of many years, decades and decades, there can come this questioning that God is even there. Or if he is there, does he care? Because what I'm going through seems so hard to understand and accept. And we have to face this. Don't bury it or, or just push it away. And you've got to face it. Like the psalmist, be deadly honest. Sometimes it's very difficult to talk to other Christians about this sort of thing at the time because they often find it very difficult to handle. There are those you can speak to, but a lot will often come up with platitudes which don't help. Or say, where's your faith? And all sorts of things like that. Or Sometimes their reaction is because you trigger off their own insecurities and they can't handle the, the, the sense of, of struggle that you are going through and expressing. But then contrary to our natural inclinations, we need to tear the focus away from ourselves and from the present and turn and look at God and his past work. And, and this was the answer that the psalmist found. He gained perspective. He gained strength by remembering and focusing on the miracles of long ago. 
And let's have a look in that. Psalm 77, verse 10. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. And verse 19, it just picks up the, the Red Sea. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. And it, it can seem hard. You know, you're going through such a deep thing. And what is it to look at history? What's history? You know, history's bunk, as some people would say. But it's not somehow in looking at the history of what God has done we can have faith renewed and stirred in our hearts. The pain in our heart may not go, but still at the deepest part of our being, when we look at the past, when we focus on what God has done, when we forget ourselves and just look and read the scriptures, there is a power, there is a work of God in our hearts that can give us a strength, a, a gut, a, a grit in our heart to get us through the most deepest darkness. It's in the past, but because it was of God, it can affect us in the present. This is the God we follow. God is one who keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises. God has proved he can be trusted and relied on, even in the most difficult, perplexing, dark situations. And so we have the tremendous statements in the Old Testament. You know, you know, our God is able to bring us out from the fiery furnace. But if not, but if not, we are still going to trust our God. Or another one, if he slay me, yet will I trust him. We don't understand what we're going through, but we know that God can be trusted. And we read how they spoke when they were going through difficulties and they came through. As we read and ponder these stories, how God worked in the lives of his people, our faith can be strengthened, even in the darkest time. The God of Moses, the God of Joshua, David, Job is our God. They faced impossible situations. They faced deep trials. Yet God brought them through. And this God has not changed. He will also take us through whatever we face, as we look to him and trust him. Nothing, nothing can shake you if you keep trusting in him who is unshakable. So remember and think about the miracles of the Bible. And one in particular. Do you think at times, how can God really love me and accept me? You might speak very positively to others and speak about your trust and faith in God, yet at times you might still think, does God even know me? Why should he love me? How, why should he care about me? Anyway, he is so holy, and, and I am so unholy. He's so pure and perfect, and that is not me. And of course, he is awesome and great. He made this vast universe that is just ginormous beyond comprehension. Why should he be interested in me? 
Well, there is one event that penetrates through all my doubts and questions and proves that God's love is for me. God has a deep interest in my welfare. God has a deep, deep interest in your welfare. He cares about you intimately and deeply, even though you and I do not deserve it. I'm glad we don't have to deserve it. It is a love, it is a commitment, it is a concern for you and me that is very, very strong. In Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I don't know how you were before you became a Christian, but I know how I was. I did not want God in my life because I did not want anyone telling me what to do. And yet, somehow, God reached out to me and drew me to him, and I was hostile towards him. And if God reached out and drew you to him when you were hostile to him and didn't want him, how much more now can you have confidence in his saving you and bringing you through whatever you face? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? It's a strange thing sometimes as Christians, your conscience is awakened, your awareness of your frailty and weakness and sinfulness, and sometimes the very, the awakening of, of your awareness of how much you, are, you fall short and fail can actually cause you to sense, well, how can God love me and care for me? Because you're aware of the darkness within you, whereas before you were a Christian, you didn't really worry two hoots about it. You didn't even think about it. And strangely, your, your consciousness of your sinfulness can, can cause you to feel maybe God can't accept you. Yet the very thing that he has done in saving you and bringing you to him and awakening your conscience and awakening you to an awareness of your imperfection and fault, you now can have this greater confidence. How much more since he saved you, can you have confidence that he's going to bring you to completion, what he's done in your life? Just as the children of Israel could see and touch the stones that reminded them of a great miracle, so too we can hold the bread and the wine. We can touch it. We can feel it. And we are told, do this in remembrance of me. And this, this remembering is, is not quite like the remembering that is done on Anzac Day. It is remembering a great event in the past. And Anzac Day remembers a great sacrifice in the past. But somehow, in the remembering of the event, there is a strengthening that takes place in our hearts. In focusing on what Jesus has done for us, how he died that we might be forgiven and rose again to give us life, in that, in that very act there is something strengthening that takes place in our soul that is very precious. The one that hopes in him will not be disappointed. The one that trusts in him will never be put to shame. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, 
please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.